Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie J. Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who obsesses constantly about science. And today we're going to talk about the horror of the 1%. With the latest Purge movie just out in theaters, we thought it was a good time to talk about how horror movies portray rich people as scary monsters. obsessed with the Purge movies, especially the second one, which I just thought was amazing. And I kind of liked some of the stuff about the first one. But the Purge movies are all about rich people, basically, like having an excuse from the government to hunt the poor for sport. Our neighborhood is under siege from a government who doesn't give a shit about any of us. At the siren, all crime, including murder, will be legal for 12 hours. The fact that it's become this huge runaway hit series really seems to indicate that it's hit a nerve in terms of its depiction of class warfare and the rich as, like, predators. And this is something that actually goes back decades in horror. I remember when um, the movie Hostel came out, and that was kind of the first of, I think, what later got called torture porn or just, like, torture horror movies, which is a very simple premise, which is simply that rich people in some kind of Central European country are able to sign up for this elite club where they are given some kind of tourist to torture to death. And so they're, you know, they're brought into this nice facility and they're just given someone to torture to death. And spoilers, if you haven't seen it, come on, go, go see it. Uh, but we find out at the end that American tourists are the most expensive mm-hmm. because, you know, we are kind of the most awful, but also just it's, it's fun to torture Americans. And then it's kind of a descending ranked order of like basically like countries in terms of GDP, you know, <laughs> more, more, you know, bigger GDP, the, the more expensive it is. But so so we, the G7 is just like. <laughs> yeah, the G7, like you definitely want to torture one of them. And so. Basically, it's, it's that same idea that rich pe- that we're basically the playthings of rich people and that they can either, you know, hunt us because the government gives us a day every year to do that or just because they have so much money that they're able to be part of this exclusive elite secret club. Yeah, and you might feel secure in your middle class or even upper middle class status. You might feel like, well, I'm not part of the, the kind of class of people who are hunted for sport. Like it used to be that people who were hunted for sport were like homeless people exclusively. Such as the fine film, Hard Target. The amazingly (laughs) terrific film, Hard Target. It's it's John Woo's first American film. It is. I actually love that film. I love that film too. And Jean-Claude Van Damme is a homeless Vietnam vet who's being hunted for sport by rich people. Yeah, but it used to be just homeless people who we would see being hunted for sport. But now it's everybody, everybody who's not super rich. And it's sort of the fear that, you know, if you're not in the, 1% 1% of the 1%, you will find yourself on the receiving end of that and that whatever status you gain won't matter. And of course, the most important hero movie, I would argue, for the past like couple of years is Get Out, in which the, the monsters are basically rich, almost entirely white people who are buying people at auction and using their, specifically black people, and using their bodies. Yeah, and it's kind of a twist on being John Malkovich. Spoiler alert, um, we find out that they have um, some kind of device that allows them to port their uh, brains into the bodies of black people. You have been chosen because of the physical advantages you've enjoyed your entire lifetime. With your natural gifts and our determination, we could both be part of something greater, something perfect. And they specifically fetishize 
black people, partly because of, you know, all the racial stereotypes about them being faster or like sexier or something like that. We get a lot of hints about that, but also the idea that they have more artistic talent. And that's mm-hmm. really what the film is about is that the main character is an incredibly talented photographer and the white people want to bid on him to kind of get his talent as his well, eye. his eye, as well as just to have a young body. It's not just about wanting to be young again. It's about wanting to be a particular kind of person. And in the United States, race is often the sort of system in which we experience class. We, we don't have a lot of open talk about class in the United States. Um, maybe a little bit recently with um, the mortgage crisis, we suddenly realized that there's this huge class division. But generally, the, you know, when we think about racial identity in the United States, that is our way of kind of talking about who's rich and who's poor. And so I think that's why Get Out really fits into both the genre of black horror, but also the genre of economic horror, class horror, because it's really kind of all bound up together. Yeah. And I think what's part of what's fascinating about Get Out is that it's not just about them stealing your body or about them trying to kill you. It's about taking your identity, taking your personhood, kind of appropriating your culture in a very literal way and trying to turn you into something that they can own and kind of exploit on multiple different levels. And it is sort of a complicated and sort of fascinating metaphor for the ways in which wealth attempts to kind of turn everything into an extension of itself. Yeah, it's about appropriation. The reason why minority groups whose work is appropriated get so pissed off about it is because it's not just like, oh, you stole my idea. It's like, and you made a shit ton of money Mm -hmm. off it. It's an economic form of oppression. And because and that's the whole history of appropriation. If you look at, you know, the really simple history of like how white people have appropriated black music in the 20th mm-hmm. century, it's it's always for profit. It's not just as like, no, it's just an homage to you and <laughs> right. then we'll pay you back. It's like, no, we are explicitly stealing your culture to make money and then do yeah. that for you. <laughs> it's you know, that's how the you tell the difference between appropriation and an homage or, or appreciation is where does the money go? Who gets the money? Yeah, and who's acknowledged as the originator of that exactly. culture? Exactly. The thing that unites Get Out and the Purge movies and a bunch of other films that we've seen recently is this thing of the rich being able to do whatever they want and everybody else basically being somewhat, you know, their humanity is in question whenever the rich wants to use them for something. I wanted to mention just a couple of other titles uh, that that kind of fit into that. One of them is a a little scene film uh, called Gamer, which I really wish more people would watch because it's a delightful sort of body horror sci-fi film where uh, the rich are able to appropriate the bodies of poor people in kind of like, it's kind of VR but there's actual there you're actually taking over the body of a real person so that person becomes your avatar and so it's about this rich kid who is constantly using the body of this really burly prisoner and you know sending him into war games and things like that and the guy can be killed you know and so you know the rich kid in back home in his room won't be killed but his his human avatar will be and of course people are using this technology for violence and sex and it's just, again, it's just this sort of raw representation of what does it mean to be rich and how, how appropriation works, but also how rich people use and abuse the bodies of poor people. 
The other one I was going to mention is a classic from the 1980s called Society. My favorite. Yeah, directed by Brian Usna, uh, who is really a mastermind of body horror and, and sort of B-movies that are way, way better than you would ever expect. And it's just, you know, it's your usual story about how aliens are running the world. People in Beverly Hills, where the film is set, um, are all basically aliens. But, you know, they like to eat people. And the best way to eat people is to adopt humans and make them think that you're, they're your kid. And then at a certain point, when they reach a certain age, you get together with all your alien friends, you merge into a giant sexualized blob of throbbing flesh. The shunt. The shunt is the name of the person that they're going to eat. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've not that I've watched this film like 90 times. <laughs> they go on this hunt for the shunt um, and it involves, you know, just sucking all the meat off your bones. It's, it's quite disgusting. But it's also, again, it's this very literal uh, representation of the rich eating the poor. Yeah, and it's interesting because part of what makes horror movies so effective at depicting like the awfulness or the kind of scariness of extreme wealth, especially existing alongside poverty or people who are struggling, is that it is kind of obscene. Like we use the phrase obscene wealth a lot. And there's something kind of horrifying about the idea of just having so much money and having so much it's like physically revolting. Yeah, so much capital when other people are are struggling and starving. Horror is really good at getting to the visceral part of that, literally through like body horror, through depictions of extreme, you know, mutilation or destruction. Torture. And yeah, and just by depicting how kind of disgusting it is when there are people who are like the 0.1% and then everybody else is is in some form of either severe need or at least extreme insecurity economically. Yeah, and I think that the other thing about horror is that because so many of these movies are dealing with uh, bodily violation and pain, like mm -hmm. people being in pain and having their bodies ripped apart, it's a reminder that economics aren't just this abstract thing out mm -hmm. there. <clears throat> you know, it's not just like, oh, there's people in a, in a corporate, you know, chamber making decisions that are kind of mildly annoying. This is a matter of life and death. If you don't have enough money, mm -hmm. it will cause you psychological harm. It will cause you physical harm. You may die because you mm -hmm. don't have access to health care or because you're living on the street. Having adverse experience at work may mean that you lose an arm. Mm -hmm. You know, you might die uh, if you're doing dangerous labor. The most dangerous kinds of labor are often the, the most poorly paid. Not always, but much. Yeah, and medical horror often kind of reflects a fear of not having access to health care or getting shitty health care because you don't have good insurance or because the medical establishment just doesn't give a shit about you. Or because the medical establishment would rather experiment on you mm -hmm. than cure you. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we may have a bit of a history of that in the United States with like the Tuskegee experiment. Among others. Among yeah. others. So the other thing about horror is that it's a great way of having sort of a fun allegory for how class warfare works. And Cory Doctorow is fond of saying that the rich are speciating, mm -hmm. meaning that they have so much access to so much tech and healthcare that they really are becoming a different species. And in horror movies, that becomes literal. Yeah. And, you know, one of the great metaphors for rich people in horror and in society generally is vampires. Vampires are frequently depicted as the wealthy and powerful because they often have mind control powers. They often live for hundreds and hundreds of years and can accumulate wealth and 
can get access to stuff that nobody else can get access to. Everything from like the classic Dracula stories to up to Underworld and the Vampire Diaries and pretty much you name it. Vampires are often depicted as extremely wealthy and connected and powerful and they kind of treat everybody who's not a vampire as their playthings in a way that is definitely a metaphor for the rich. And they eat the poor. And they eat the poor. So just like the rich people in society. And also Karl Marx in Capital uses vampires as a metaphor for the rich. So even Karl Marx uh, was you know, indulging in a little bit of horror movie writing or ho- horror story writing. I did not know that. Yeah. So Marx so was a horror fan. He, he was a horror fan. He does bring in a lot of um, weird kind of imagery of the undead. And he feels like the rich are like vampires because... Um, they actually are sort of feeding on the death of, of other people because they, the way that they extract capital from workers, in his view, in Marx's view, is by paying them less than they are worth. So you pay workers to build something that then you sell for a profit, which means that those workers don't get that profit that they created for you. So right. it's kind of like stealing their blood. It's kind of like... <laughs> taking away the one thing that they have that's valuable, which is their labor, and you get the surplus and they get garbage. The other great vampire movie in this vein is Blade Two, directed by Guillermo del Toro uh, in one of his earlier American films. I mean, Blade One is also great, but Blade Two just gets so freaking weird mm-hmm. because these the vampires are super wealthy, but they're running a secret biotech company that's developing like super vampires. And I just I love that it kind of blends mm-hmm. the trope um, of from cyberpunk of like the super elite corporate overlords with fancy technology that's mm-hmm. kind of like life extension technology or whatever. And then it blends that with the classic vampire story. So I love that. The other thing uh, when we were thinking about speciating is human centipede. The human centipede. And the human centipede is sort of fascinating because it is both about a rich guy who is experimenting on people. Who has he, like a fancy estate. He's, you know yeah, he's wealthy. He's like a super rich doctor who is... Much like the people in Hostel and in The Purge, he's kind of taking people and just doing whatever he wants to them. But he's also kind of trying to create a new species. He's like trying to like change the human race in this way that doesn't really make any sense. But he wants to like, if you haven't seen The Human Centipede, it's about three people being kind of surgically connected so that their mouths and their butts are connected together. In a giant digestive tract. The lips from B and C and the aims of A and B are cut circular along the border between skin and mucosa. Right, a super long digestive tract that I don't even know why you would do that. It doesn't really make a lot he of sense. He kind of says, so the, the mad doctor in the film, Dieter Laser, Dieter Laser, um, says at one point that basically these are the, the two people whose mouths are just going to be eating poop. He says that it's partly because these are just garbage people and mm-hmm. they should just be eating shit, which is often the attitude of rich people toward the poor is that, mm-hmm. that somehow it's the poor, it's the poor's fault for being poor. And so therefore they just deserve to eat shit because right. some, they've done something bad or wrong right. um, instead of simply being born into an economic system, which actually thrives on keeping people poor so that you make even the most terrible jobs look appealing because mm-hmm. there's the threat of having no job. 
you know, if you make the threat of having no job bad enough, then you can tempt people into doing, you know, task work uh, right. online or... Yeah, and I think in the case of Human Centipede, they're, they're not actually poor. I think that they're middle class, but it's that thing where, like, you can have class privilege up to a certain point, but that can be taken away from you in a second. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of signifiers attached to extreme wealth that are a little bit creepy that often crop up in horror movies, like having a giant freaking house... Giant houses tend to have like secret passageways. They tend to have ghosts. They tend to have like scary stuff in them. There's something a little bit like alarming about a house that you go in, but you can't necessarily get out again. Yeah, and haunted um, houses are all over the place in mm-hmm. horror. And haunted houses do kind of form the centerpiece of a lot of this kind of horror that we're talking about here, fear of the wealthy, but also just like fear of, of economic change in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Crimson Peak is a really interesting example, uh, a recent example of a haunted house film. It's not a traditional horror film in that, you know, the ghosts wind up kind of being the good guys. Sorry, spoiler. But it, it has many of the same characteristics of a, of a typical haunted house story, which is, well, first of all, the house is haunted. Mm-hmm. But also it's a house that represents wealth that is draining away right and so it's both the fear of the wealthy but also the fear that wealth is just this temporary thing that you right. can one generation can be wealthy and the next generation isn't and, and, and the rich people in that movie are freaking terrifying as well they're terrifying and terrified mm-hmm. and you know they're terrified that they're losing their power right and i mean again it goes back to the purge movies which one of the things i love in the first purge film um, although i agree with you that the second one is more interesting is that there's so much fetishization of surveillance equipment and home protection mm-hmm. equipment it's all about how do you protect your house mm-hmm. and you know the main character is the dude who sells all these home security systems even though the wealthy can kind of treat the poor like playthings they also are just terrified that one day they will become one of these poor people. Yeah, and of course we have had this huge wave of found footage movies, many of which, like Paranormal Activity, include security footage and include kind of like the spooky empty house where something is happening. Like Paranormal Activity 2 literally has about 20 minutes of like a pool camera just showing a piece (laughs) of plastic moving across an empty swimming pool in a suburban house. Yeah, I mean, paranormal. the first Paranormal Activity, I think, is actually one of the greatest horror movies ever. I find the tension in it to be great. I think it has great subtext. But it is also very much about the horror of just a house and mm-hmm. what you what's in the house and, you know, how you protect the house and or how you can't protect the house, um, which reminds me of how the kind of root, I think, of the modern haunted house movie is poltergeist. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's in the 80s and that's kind of this like new era in horror. That's a great example of a movie that isn't about fearing the rich per se. It is about fearing falling out of the middle class because Mm -hmm. this is, I mean, the house in Poltergeist is not a fancy mansion. It's not a crimson peak. It's just a nice suburban house Mm -hmm. in a nice, freshly built suburb. And the people who move in, the family just wants to have, you know, a middle class life. And it's, of course, threatened, in fact, by all of the props of middle class life, like having a really nice TV, which then mm-hmm. eats their daughter, um, having a really nice backyard, which the tree almost like eats their son. Um, and what we discover is that the house is haunted 
by the indigenous people who were there before. It's the, it's the old Indian graveyard trick. But that's a very on-the-nose representation of how class works in the United States is that, you know, you get this new kind of European middle class coming in, stealing all the land and all the houses from the people who lived here, the Native Americans, and then trying to have their happy story uh, of, of wealth. And it just doesn't work because they're caught in this supernatural system of, mm -hmm. of exploitation. And, you know, the supernatural world wants to balance things out. Right. And I think that's one of the things that's so appealing about these stories is that there's this idea that in all of these stories, there's like there's an injustice that's taken place. It's often an economic injustice. But through the supernatural, we somehow get justice. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of these like scary house stories, um, the people living in the house may not have done anything wrong. Like if you think of like The Conjuring or some of those other movies where it's like you moved into a house and through no fault of your own, there's something terrible occupying it. And it really is like this ultimate metaphor for economic insecurity because the house is probably your biggest investment. It represents the biggest concentration of like what wealth you've been able to gather. And then the walls start melting or there's like bugs <laughs> everywhere or the toilet is exploding yeah and like you know sewage is flying out of the toilet or yeah. it's like this huge metaphor for what if i lose everything what if like my kind of scratching my kind of like clawing at the at the edges of middle class status just falls apart and i think that that insecurity that kind of fear of just like i'm going to lose all of my status and just be like turned into nothing or, you know, but we lose my house and be like underwater economically is kind of a byproduct of the concentration of wealth in the hands of relatively few people as an accelerating trend. And so even if you don't have rich people as a scary force in a lot of these movies, the insecurity of not being able to catch up or stay apace with like everybody else in, in a world of, of increasingly concentrated wealth is kind of at the root of a lot of these these movies about economic insecurity and houses. And there's been a lot of talk about how the, the home invasion movie, which there's been a million of recently, is kind of partly about like, what if poverty starts coming into your safe house that's supposed to be like your guarantee of middle class status. And it is kind of this metaphor of just like insecurity and, and feeling under threat. Yeah, Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a book back in the 1980s called Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. And she it's basically just a book about middle class psychology, which I think is still extremely relevant and how at the base of this psychology, it's not about feeling like oh, I'm great. I have got it all. It's a just utter terror, constant terror that you're going to lose your class position. You're going to lose your property. Um, you're going to lose access to healthcare, And I think you're absolutely right that like lurking beneath that really is a fear of the wealthy again, mm -hmm. because the more wealth is concentrated, the more you get things like the more mortgage crisis, which mm -hmm. is basically vampires trying to suck away <laughs> all of our freaking right. blood. Yeah. And, uh, I love um, the sort of post mortgage crisis movie, Drag Me to Hell, which was a movie that Sam Raimi did after the Spider-Man movies basically drove him mad and he wanted to go back to doing stuff that was sort of like his, his early films, like The Evil Dead. And so it's a low-budget horror movie. It's about a woman whose job is to decide who gets um, home loans. Mm -hmm. And 
she's struggling because like some dude who has less experience than her just got promoted over her and she's feeling really under siege. Like her middle-class life is, is under threat in her efforts to, you know, keep her house and things like that. And then this woman comes to her asking for a second mortgage or the woman is Roma and she's kind of weird and old. Mm -hmm. And our main character decides she doesn't have to do this. She decides not to give her a loan. And that means this woman is going to lose her house. So she's, you know, she, instead of being sympathetic to someone else in her position, she's actually now shitting on someone below her who has the exact same problem she does. And the Roma lady curses her. Soon it will be you who comes begging to me. Yeah, she's dragged to hell. And it's like the whole movie is like a little bit what I was talking about before. It's like it's supernatural justice for someone who is screwing a, a mm -hmm. poor person over. And it's so awesome because the justice is delivered so cruelly. And everything this woman does to try to get out of this curse just makes it worse. And like she tries to sacrifice a kitten, like oh my god, scariest, most upsetting scene ever. She sacrifices her freaking kitten uh, to get rid of this no. demon that's driving her to hell. Uh, and then you know she deserves to go to hell. That bitch. She not only did she not give a loan to the nice old lady, she also fucking killed a kitten. She's dragged to hell. Let that be a lesson to you, middle class. Don't don't deprive people below you. Don't fuck with the poor. Don't Just fuck with don't the poor. Don't fuck with the poor because. It is, that is, that is the curse of capitalism is that the middle class, the people struggling to be middle class, instead of identifying with people who are more vulnerable than them, who are working class and poor and seeing that they have something in common, which is this 1%, which is sucking all of our blood out. Instead, those middle class people keep identifying with the vampires, right. keep identifying with the people above them and not realizing that or not allowing themselves to understand that next time the purge comes around, they're going to be the ones who are killed, you know, and or they're going to be on the list of, you know, the tourists who get tortured in the hostel. So, yeah. And, you know, there really is no more apt metaphor for like the fear of downward mobility than literally being dragged to hell, like literally not just losing your class status, but just being like pulled into a, a an underworld, an underworld. And yeah. it's like it's it's almost on the nose, but it's also great. I wanted to bring up uh, American Horror Story, which was a show that lasted seven seasons. It's hard to believe. Uh, the first season is all about a scary house. It's called um, Murder House, I think. Yeah. And it's about this house where somebody was murdered and there's just... A little bunch of murders. There's a bunch of scary ghosts in there. I don't even know what the hell's going on. There's, there's a like, lot of scary ghosts. There's like creepy abortion ghosts. There's like S&M like fetishist ghosts. S&M fetishist ghosts. There's, there's like, like everything. There's like school shooting ghosts. A hot dead boy ghost. He's like the school shooter, I think. It's about this house, this nice middle class. Well, they're not really very nice. Middle class family is occupying... And everything is terrible and it just, everything falls apart. And I think everybody ends up being horribly tortured and punished. And it's just basically like the ultimate, like middle-class horror. And then later they had Coven, which is kind of more explicitly about wealth and privilege. You have the Kathy Bates character, who's a former slave owner, who's come back to life and is now kind of grappling with the world of 2015 or whenever it came out. And it's very much about like the legacy of wealth and privilege and how basically that's the original sin, not just slave owning, but also just the kind of legacy of wealth and abuse. Yeah, is because the house in Coven, it is also centered on a house and it's the house where the, the witch, the witches um, 
are being trained by the younger witches are being trained by the older witches. And it turns out that the deep history of the house goes back to this woman who was doing right. Um, she was a slave owner, Kathy Bates. She was super cruel. She's like the ultimate evil white feminist because she's like getting power for the white ladies <laughs> on the backs of all of these black people. Right. So she's literally like murdering and experimenting on. And that legacy of, of doing that is what's haunting the modern uh, witches in the house. There are other souls trapped in here. Innocent, beautiful souls who never knew malice or anger. It's not fair that they're trapped in a place like this. It's heartbreaking. Then there are others who are just in on the game. They're bitches. Part of it is this idea of, you know, as well as wealth in the present day being this kind of scary, somewhat monstrous force, it's also that a lot of wealth is built on injustices in the past, like the indigenous people's graveyard that we talked about uh, in Poltergeist, but also this scary evil slave owner, and just generally this legacy of horror that people just think, well, it's in the past, we don't have to deal with it, but actually it really isn't. Yeah, that's why I think so much of the haunted house story, I mean, it is about the past coming back. I mean, ghosts and the undead are mm -hmm. always, to me, about unfinished business from history. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why there's so much of black horror is about uh, ghosts and revenants. Um, one of the very, first, in fact, the first popular zombie movie in the United States was called I Walk with a Zombie. It's set on the island of St. Sebastian, which was colonized by Europeans. And it's explicitly about a family that was a plantation-owning family that tormented its black workers and black slaves and are still tormenting them. They're nominally free, but still working the plantation. And the white woman who runs the plantation has appropriated the voodoo traditions from the locals. So it's appropriation and it's just like straight up colonial relationships. And it's also, again, a very satisfying narrative of revenge where mm -hmm. the black characters um, are able to get revenge on the white family by, you know, of course, uh, using voodoo and various other means, um, more direct means, direct action, <laughs> um, which is also helpful in a colonial situation. And that kind of goes right up into the present where you're seeing uh, films like People Under the Stairs in the 1990s, which is also about white people in a black neighborhood screwing over the locals and getting their comeuppance um, right up into Get Out, where we're seeing the same kind of narrative of white people stealing black bodies and, mm -hmm. and appropriating them. So I think that history of colonialism, which is often in the United States only talked about as a history of racism, is also a history of economic exploitation. And mm -hmm. that's what's showing up is that those bodily injuries, that haunting, that can't be gotten rid of. No matter what you do, no matter how many times you scrub the house or mm -hmm. light your smudge stick, um, it's still there. The blood stains are still there. So, Charlie, do you think that these stories help us these horror stories help us cope with that colonial legacy and, and with these economic horrors in, in our everyday lives? I mean, I think they kind of do. I think that part of what you were just talking about with like the legacy of colonialism is interesting because as white middle-class people, we're trained to think of ourselves as innocent and like... Completely... Well, that's what other people did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was other people that did it. And really, we're just doing our best. And I think a lot of horror movies kind of satirize that or undermine that while also kind of playing to our insecurities and like 
kind of literalizing our fears in a way that also kind of maybe hints at us that maybe you're not completely innocent. I also think it's interesting, coming back to vampires, that vampires are these like terrifying figures who, you know, want to eat us. But we also kind of fantasize about becoming vampires or wanting to join them. And it's this great dichotomy of like, well, you know, if a vampire came after me, that would be horrible. But if I could just become a vampire, that would be awesome. And then I would get to be like one of the super rich. And I think that's kind of getting to the root of America's like kind of mixed feelings about extreme wealth because people in America don't like to tax the rich because everybody likes to believe that we will somehow become rich at some point or that, you know, there's some justice in the world and that if we just keep working hard enough, we will become like the super rich in like a day or two, maybe a few days. We'll just like suddenly wealth will fall down upon us somehow. Yeah, we'll, and our, our greatness will be recognized. We will win the lottery. Yeah, and even though the reality is increasingly one of downward mobility, we still have this huge American myth of upward mobility and like the kind of Horatio Alger, like pulling yourself up thing. And so we just believe that if you really want to be rich, you just have to do it and get out there. And so the vampires kind of perfectly encapsulate that because they're seductive, they're beautiful, they're charming. They're kind of awesome. They're often kind of heroes or anti-heroes, even though they're often terrifying and predatory. And like things like True Blood, Vampire Diaries, a ton of other series kind of play with that dichotomy. And kind of even though you see the vampires committing awful crimes, you still kind of love them. You still are like, well, but they're really lovable. And I think that that really gets to the root of America's kind of ambivalent relationship with extreme wealth and our kind of fetishization and and longing for extreme wealth even while we kind of understand that it's also terrifying and kind of brutalizing disgusting and, yeah and murderous it's seductive and terrible yeah and i mean it gets it gets back to what i was saying about drag me to hell where you know it's about a woman who makes that choice she's in the middle class and she chooses to think of herself as a as a potential rich person mm -hmm. instead of a potential poor person mm -hmm. and that's why she's going to hell it's funny how when we're at a time of, of economic fear when things seem really unstable and the rift between um, you know, wealthy people and, and not wealthy people is growing, that we would be interested in watching stories that were horrifying and scary and that dramatize that. Like, wouldn't we want escapism? Like, mm -hmm. wouldn't we want a happy musical where everybody's rich, like in the 1930s? And I think that's because these kinds of stories allow us to tell the truth about mm -hmm. what the economy is doing to us in a way that you can't really do in science fiction where you're kind of, you know, you can have kind of a cyberpunk, you know, sort of noir realism where it's like evil corporate people are chasing you around. But that doesn't really get at the gut churning horror of not having enough money to eat this month mm -hmm. or the fear that your kid is going to die because you don't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, as I said earlier, this is we are living in a kind of horror movie when we confront what poverty really means especially mm -hmm. now in this country where we're taking more and more away from the poor when we don't have social services to support them when we don't have health services to support them in a meaningful way and it really becoming poor really is like going to hell it's like being tortured and then told you deserve it even mm -hmm. though it's just because you lost your job because the factory went away or because right. you know you just weren't lucky uh, luck plays a lot in this. And so it sure does. 
in dark times, interestingly, horror movies provide kind of a weird source of hope because mm-hmm. at least in these movies we can acknowledge what's really happening and not pretend like one day I'm going to be rich. It's like, actually, no, one day somebody's going to suck all my blood and throw my body on the pile. And part of why these movies provide hope is because they often have a surprisingly optimistic ending. I think the Purge movies often end with like the people you really wish would survive surviving. Get Out, spoiler alert, has a surprisingly happy ending in which all of the evil white people are killed and the main character gets away. And originally they tried having a different ending in which that doesn't happen. And I think that part of the reason for that film's success is because it does actually give you a hopeful ending in which evil is vanquished, at least in that one instance. Yeah, we just saw uh, Tanana Reeve do, uh, who's a great horror writer, give a talk um, at WizCon about how Get Out is a kind of perfect example of black horror, which is just a genre of films that are kind of about uh, the horror of um, dealing with white supremacy and, and having to cope with the problems that black people deal with that other groups don't. And she was saying that part of what draws her to supernatural horror, as opposed to like, say, true crime, is that she's already dealing with all that stuff in her life, like real crime and like real terrible things that are happening, kids getting shot by cops every day. But in a supernatural story, like Get Out or a kind of mad science story, whatever you want to classify Get Out as, there's actually rules. And like you were saying, like the good guy kind of gets away and like Mm -hmm. the bad guys get their comeuppance, like the crappy money lending lady at the bank goes to hell. You know, there's that there's that sense of through the supernatural, we can uh, we can reach toward like a greater order in the universe. Mm -hmm. And and it's an order of justice. And I think that's the kind of irony in these films is that even though it's about, you know, mutilation and torture, it's also about a kind of ultimate form of justice Mm -hmm. and and having access to that justice and having the ability to take control of it. Yeah. And vampires and demons and monsters have rules of how they work. And like, if you do this, you'll be safe. And if you don't do this, you'll be safe. Whereas in real life, the rules are risky. Just like cross your fingers and hope for the best a lot of the time. Uh, Thanks for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Um, And if you like our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, all the other places that you can subscribe to podcasts. You can review us on Apple Podcasts. That's always very exciting. You know, thanks to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for editing this episode. Thanks to Chris Palmer for providing the music. And thanks to you for listening. Um, And if you have questions or suggestions for episodes, you can... Uh, suggest it to us on Twitter. We're at OOAC Pod on Twitter, mm-hmm. and we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to purge. Bye.